Well, many of you know, I, I was born in the Houston area and then my family moved here when I was very young, moved here to Lubbock. So I, I grew up here. So I've been here for over 30 years. And so that means I'm a Red Raider fan. Okay. I, I bleed red and black, whether they're winning or losing, I'm a Red Raider for life. I grew up going to the football games, the basketball games, the, the baseball games used to a long time ago, the end zone where the grass is was much wider. And a lot of the kids would watch the games from there. And when we had birthdays, all of our friends would come with this and we would go to a tech football game and we'd sit in that grass end zone and we'd get pizza boxes and we'd slide down that huge hill on the pizza boxes. So we grew up doing that and tech wasn't really that great back then. I'll just be honest with you, but we loved going to the tech games. In fact, growing up in my house, we sang the fight song and the alma mater as much as we sang worship songs. Okay. My mom would go around the house because she graduated from tech and my dad graduated from tech. Uh, they would go around the house, especially my mom singing the fight song. Like she sang that as much as she sang worship music. Okay. So, so tech red and black, the matador, it's like a religion in my home. I grew up loving tech. So if you were to say, Hey, Clayton, who's your team? I would say whatever red Raider team, we got a ton of the soccer girls that are, uh, that come here on a regular basis. And, uh, they're in Iowa state, I think tonight, but they come here all the time. And so man, whatever team tech has, that's, that's my team. If you were to ask me, Hey, what, what's your team? I'd say tech, like that's my team. If you were to say, What's your NFL team though? Like what team do you follow? I'd say, of course, the Dallas Cowboys. I mean, there's no one else, right? I mean, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a Romo fan. Like that's my quarterback. You know, I, I love Dak, but, but, uh, but Romo's like my, my quarterback and I still feel for him and tear up when I think about him not winning a Super Bowl and, and not getting that catch in, in the Green Bay game and the NFC Championship. I mean, I, I still get like emotional about that because I love the Cowboys. If you were to ask me like what professional baseball team is your, is your favorite team? Like who's your team in, in baseball? I would say, well, I'm really more of a fan of baseball. I grew up playing baseball. I love baseball, but I'm more of a fan of baseball. Like in general, I was in Boston recently and I got a Red Sox hat and I came back here and people are like, why did you get a Red Sox hat? I'm like, I'm a fan of baseball. Like I love baseball hats. I like going to the different baseball parks, but if you had to like nail me down, who's your favorite baseball team, I would say the New York Yankees. Now I know that makes a lot of you. Some of you are like, yes. Some of you are like, I'm leaving right now. Um, and I know some of you are probably like, if you know a lot about baseball, you're like, what an easy choice. I mean, the most successful baseball franchise in all of history, like, and you choose the, the Yankees, like that's your, what an easy choice. And it really has nothing to do with that. Like the Yankees have been my team in baseball since I was a child. See, some of you know this, but my mom and her brothers and sisters actually grew up with Mickey Mantle's kids. And if you know the Yankees, you know who Mickey Mantle is. He's one of the most famous and greatest baseball players ever to play the game. And so I have a signed baseball by Mickey Mantle. If you've been coming here for four or five years, I've shown you that before. Maybe you were here one of those weeks. I, I showed that baseball, but my mom and her brother, they like literally grew up going to his house and swimming in Mickey Mantle's pool. And so we've got signed hats and baseballs and all kinds of stuff. So obviously as a child, you get a Mickey Mantle baseball, you're a Yankees fan for life. Like that just impacted me so greatly. I became a Yankees fan. If you were to say, hey, who's your favorite like NBA team? I would say the Lakers. <laughs> and you're like, eh, that sounds about right. That's par for the course. You chose the, 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 the Yankees. Why not choose the Lakers? But actually it has nothing to do with the Lakers, I was actually, and this is going to rub some of you even more the wrong way, I was actually a huge Kobe fan. I'm much more of a fan of the players in the NBA than I am the teens. And I loved Kobe Bryant. I know some of you are squirming right now, okay, but I loved the Black Mama, all right? I loved his passion, his energy, his drive for basketball. I, I, I loved him. I don't love all the things he's done, but I love everything about like his basketball career. And so because I loved Kobe Bryant and not LeBron James, I became a Lakers fan. And now I'm kind of in an identity crisis. Like, I don't know what to think about LeBron being on the Lakers. Like I want to cheer for him, but I can't really cheer for LeBron. And so, uh, so I'm having trouble there, but that would be my, that would be my NBA team. Now, somehow in the last year, everyone in Lubbock, like in the entire tech fan base on one night of the NFL draft also became Kansas City Chiefs fans. How many of you haven't, does anybody have any Kansas City Chiefs gear? You've got a jersey, okay, some hats, shirts. Okay, me and my boys, we all have Patrick Mahomes, um, 
Kansas City Chiefs jerseys. We've got some t-shirts. Uh, Mark, one of our worship pastors, has uh, a Kansas City Chiefs hat. Okay, so like an entire fan base in one night also became, whatever other team you follow, we also became, some of you did too, Kansas City Chiefs fans. Why? Because the guy that we love, our quarterback that we had for so many years, got drafted by the Kansas City Chiefs. And because a guy that we all mutually love went to the Kansas City Chiefs, now most of us, a lot of us, if, you grew up, if you've been at Tech for the last few years, most of us are also Kansas City Chiefs fans because of our admiration, our mutual admiration for Patrick Mahomes, we all became Kansas City Chiefs fans. Now, you might be saying, I'm not. I don't really have a team. I don't really care about sports. I don't have a team in any sport. And that's totally fine. That's totally fine. But what's not fine, what's not okay, is to not have a team in life. Like you can not have your sports team or whatever that you like to follow. And that's totally fine. That's totally okay. But not having a team in life is a huge problem. And I want to show you more about what I'm talking about. If you've got a Bible, go to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians 1. Uh, also, I would encourage you, uh, go to RaiderChurch.com, click message notes, follow along with us. The verses and points will all be there. And it's super cool, these fill-in-the-blank notes. If you get the wrong answer, it like has a red line under it. And if you get the right answer, it has like a green line under it. And get this, like if you get an A on the note-taking, okay, you get to go to heaven. If B and below, you don't, okay? So make sure you take good. No, I'm, I'm just kidding, I'm just kidding. But if you do get an A, it doesn't really score you. But if you do get an A, Mark will give you each $10, okay? So if you get an A, go ask Mark for $10. I'm just kidding. It doesn't score you. It doesn't rank you or anything like that. But it will tell you if you're getting the right or the wrong answer. It helps you kind of fill in the blank. And then you can email those notes to yourself later. So Philippians chapter 1. We're in a series right now called Clapback. And what we're saying is uh, a clapback is a comeback. In fact, Urban Dictionary says a clapback is a comeback that's pumped with sass and attitude. And what we've said is, is that oftentimes our enemy, the devil, sometimes other people, will discourage us, will distract us, will make us feel ashamed of our past, and it will derail us from who God has called us to be and what God has called us to do. So how do we respond? How do we come back from shame from our past? I don't know about you, but I have a lot of shame from my past and the mistakes that I've made. How, how do we come back from distraction? How do we come back from discouragement? You see, whether you realize it or not, whether you face it or not, your enemy, the devil, other people trying to make themselves feel better about themselves, will try to bring you down. And they will often try to bring you down by reminding you of the things that you've done before, by the ways that you don't measure up, by discouraging you, belittling you, or even just distracting you. And if we aren't able to come back from those things, like recover, it can derail us from becoming who God's called us to be and doing what God has called us to do. So how do we come back in this series? So we come back with a clap back. And last week I told you the story about my sons playing football with the neighborhood kids. And I was the all-time quarterback. And, and my oldest son, Levi, was talking a lot of noise, talking a lot of trash to my younger son, Kobe. And instead of just taking it and getting discouraged or embarrassed or distracted from the game, Coben started clapping right back. He was younger, smaller, slower, I mean, everything than his older brother. But he didn't let what his older brother was doing to try to discourage him and distract him, get him down. No, he came right back. He came back with a clap back. And a lot of what Coben was doing that day reminded me of some things Paul have to say here in Philippians chapter one about how Paul came back from discouragement and distraction and shame. Because as he writes this letter to the Philippians, he's in prison. He's in prison for preaching the gospel. And if there's anywhere in the world you could imagine being distracted or discouraged, embarrassed, ashamed, it would be in prison. And so let's go. Philippians chapter one. You have the verses here on the screens on each side. The verses there on the notes for you at RaiderChurch.com. But let's go. Philippians chapter one. Let's see how Paul responds 
and what keeps him from getting discouraged and distracted while he's in prison. He says this in Philippians chapter one, verse five, for you, he's speaking to the Philippian church, to the believers at Philippi, for you have been my, look what that word says, partners in spreading the good news about Christ from the first you heard it until now. Verse seven, you, look what he says, you share with me the special favor of God, both in my imprisonment and in defending and confirming the truth of the good news. So here's the first comeback, right? Here's the first clapback that Paul gives us here in Philippians chapter one, is that I know my partners. I, I know my partners. That's how I don't get distracted. That's how I come back from shame and discouragement and the distraction that the enemy tries to throw my way or that others are trying to throw my way by throwing me in prison. You see, there were these people called the the Judaizers, the Pharisees, all these spiritual, like religious people that didn't like what Paul was doing, didn't like what the disciples were preaching. They didn't like that some of their followers were becoming followers of Paul and Peter and really followers of Jesus, but they were following and they were listening to Paul and Peter and to the other apostles rather than listening to them. And so they start to get upset. They're starting to spread rumors about Paul and and the disciples trying to belittle them, trying to discourage them, trying to distract them. And they get them often, they have them thrown in prison because they're in the cahoots with the Roman government. So Paul's in prison. How does he come back? How does he stay on focus. How does he stay focused on who God's called him to be and what God has called him to do? Paul says in verse five, I know my partners. Turn to the person on your left. All right, everybody turn to the person on your left and say in the best West Texas slang accent you can come up with howdy partner. All right, go. All right, turn to the person on your right. Turn to the person on your right, whether you know them or not, this can be awkward. It's totally all right. Okay. It's totally okay. Okay. On person on your right, ready? One, two, three. Howdy part. Okay. Good job. All right. You're in West Texas. You're in Lubbock. Had to take advantage of that opportunity. So last week I told you that Coben was taking a lot of noise, a lot of trash talk from his brother. And one of the reasons I think Coben was able to come back, he was able to clap back was because he was on a team. He was on a football team. There was a bunch of other kids on his team. I was on his team as the all-time quarterback at this point because he was on offense. He had just dropped a pass. His brother's talking all kinds of noise and trash saying he's guarding him and and Coben, he's going to, you know, lock him down. He's not going to let him catch any passes. He can't catch it on him, you know, and Coben claps right back because he had other teammates on his team encouraging him and saying, it's okay. And we got the next play. He had me on his team saying, Coben, don't listen to him. We've got the next play. You're going to do it. You're going to be just fine. He had teammates. He had partners that were encouraging him. It wasn't all on him. And that's what Paul's saying. It's not all on me. This is something we're sharing. This is something we're doing together. You're my partners. You're sharing with me in this burden, even in his imprisonment, they were helping him. They were giving, they were praying for him. They were coming and visiting him and coming and seeing him. They were sharing with him, even in his imprisonment, he had some partners to encourage him, to help him stay focused, to help him stay on task, to remind him of who he was in Christ. He had some partners. You know, something that professional athletes, even college athletes will say they miss the most after they're done playing sports or when they retire. You know what they miss the most? It's their teammates. Oftentimes you'll hear them say, I miss the locker room. In fact, they'll have a hard time a lot of times post sports, like in their next life, like especially if they've been doing it all their life and and they've done it into their thirties as a professional athlete, like all they've ever known is having teammates, having support, having a locker room that was with them, that was in the game with them. And now that they're done, they don't find that same sense of team. They don't find that same sense of support. They don't find those same partners to do life with that they found on their sports team. And that's who we're called to be for each other as the church, as the body of Christ, to be partners, to share in what God is doing, to encourage each other, to lift each other up. That's what we're called to be. That's who 
we're called to be as a family. And it's interesting when Paul's writing later to the Ephesians in prison again, he writes in Ephesians chapter six. And if you've grown up in church or you've read the Bible, you may remember Paul talking about putting on the the armor of God. And he starts talking about the the helmet and the belt and the breastplate and, and, and the shoes and the sword. And then he starts talking about a shield. It's called the shield of faith. In Ephesians chapter six, when he's talking about putting on the the full armor of God, he's in prison. Now picture this, surrounded by Roman guards. And these Roman guards, what do they have on? Well, they were ready dressed for battle. They were foot soldiers. They had on the helmet. They had on the belt. They had on the breastplate. They had on the shoes. They had the sword and they had a shield. And that's where Paul was getting the imagery for what he was writing about putting on the full armor of God. And when he says, put on the shield of faith, here's what's interesting about a Roman shield. They were about four feet high. They were a couple of feet wide, but they were made to be used in battle shoulder to shoulder with another Roman soldiers. And so when you would take your spot on the battlefield, you would take your shield and you would put it in front of you. And then you had someone on your right and someone on your left and they put their shields in front of them and it created what they called a shield wall. And then you had another row of soldiers behind you and they would brace you and they would keep you from moving backwards. As the army came, as the enemy advanced, they would keep you from getting pushed backwards. They would be your support and they would put their shields above them. And they would lock a shield wall above them so that when the enemy would fire their arrows, it wouldn't rain down on top of them. So in front of them and above them, they had a shield wall. The shields were made to work in unison with other shields. It's almost as if when Paul said, or when Paul writes in Ephesians six about being strong in the Lord and in his mighty power, take your stand against the the devil's schemes of distraction and shame and discouragement, or take up your shield of faith. It's almost like Paul is saying in order to do all of that, you've got to take your spot on the shield wall. Like you've got to stand shoulder to shoulder with other soldiers, with other partners who also have shields. And you take your spot in the shield wall if you really want to take up your shield of faith. If you want to extinguish, Paul says in Ephesians 6, the fiery darts of your enemy, the devil, who wants to discourage you and remind you of your past and bring shame and discouragement and distraction in your life. If you want to extinguish those arrows, then you have to be in the shield wall. Protected not just by your shield, but the shield of others who are there to support you and defend you encourage you. So Paul writes in Ephesians 6, take up your shield of faith. In other words, take your spot in the shield wall. Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 5, talking again about the devil trying to take you out. He says this in 1 Peter 5, starting in verse 8. He says, stay alert. Watch out for your great enemy, the devil. Watch this. He prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. So stand firm against him and be strong in your faith. Now watch what he says. Remember that your family of believers all over the world is going through the same kind of suffering you are. It's almost like Paul saying here in in verse or rather Peter here in verses uh, eight, nine, he's saying, stay alert, watch out. For the devil, stand firm against him, be strong in your faith. And then he says, in in doing all of that, remember your family. Almost like he's saying, if you want to stand firm against the devil's schemes, if you want to stand strong, in order to be alert, to be on on the watch for the devil, your enemy, who's trying to take you out with shame and discouragement and distraction, in order to do that, you've got to remember your family. You've got to remember your your family. And if you're a follower of Jesus, you've been born again into a spiritual family. Just like you were physically born into your family, you're born again into a spiritual family. You've got brothers and sisters in Christ that make up your new spiritual family. So, so let me just remind you 
that none of us can ever say, no Christian can ever say, well, I love Jesus, but I don't really like the church. So I'm just going to kind of be over here and do my own thing and go my own way because I really like Jesus, but I don't really like the church. And we've all been tempted to be there at different points in time. And as you grow up and as you get older, you'll be tempted because church people are messed up people. Christians are just as messed up as anyone else. And so we hurt each other. We offend each other. We get jealous. We get angry. We have bad attitudes. We're broken just like anyone else. But now through the Holy Spirit's power, we're given the ability, this supernatural ability to reconcile those relationships and to humble ourselves and to say, I'm sorry, and to ask forgiveness and to reconcile those things and to live in reconciliation with one another through the power of the gospel in the same way the gospel gives us the power to be reconciled to God. But not one of us can say, well, I'm just going to follow Jesus and kind of do my own thing. Because you were designed, you were created to do the Christian life in your spiritual family, within the body of Christ. Now, here's the problem today, especially in the American church today, and that includes us. The American church today looks more like fans than family. Now, now let me explain what I mean here. If you're a fan of a certain band, you go to that concert and you enjoy the concert. They entertain you and you consume the entertainment, right? If you go to a sporting event, you're a fan of Texas Tech or the Lakers, the Yankees or whatever, you go to that game, you watch as a fan, you enjoy the experience and you consume that experience and you have a good time. You're a fan of that team or that band. And so you come and watch but you don't really get to know the other people around you. You don't know their story. You don't know their life. You don't know what they, they're battling with. You don't know what their victories have been. You don't know their story. And you just consume as a fan. You don't contribute as a fan. You can be a fan of a team. You can be a fan of a band and show up and watch, consume, but never really contribute. And a lot of times the American church today looks more like a bunch of fans that come together and consume and leave none the different and without having really connected with anyone, without having contributed to the cause. You see, when you're a part of a family, everyone contributes. At my house, that looks like right now, my kids will vacuum and mop and take out the trash and clean their rooms and do all kinds of stuff. And usually they're doing those things each week, but they don't just get to consume, they get to contribute because they're a part of the, the family. When you're in a family, you don't just consume, you contribute, you get connected. And when Peter says, remember your family, and by remembering your family, you'll be able to stand firm and stand strong and watch out and be on the alert. And what he's saying is, is a family contributes and is connected. They don't just consume. And so my question for you is, have you just been a fan where you just come and consume but you don't really contribute and you're not really connected? If so, you're, you're in a dangerous place because Peter says that the devil's like a lion. Have you ever watched one of those nature shows where the lion like attacks the antelope or the wildebeest or, you know, they'll be running and who do they, who do they go after? They go after the one that goes away from the pack. They go after the one that that isolates themselves. That's who the lion goes after. And so if you're isolated from your family, you're not contributing, you're not connected, you're in a dangerous place. 
Because that's who the lion goes after. That's who the wolf goes after. The wolf goes after the sheep that's separated from the pack. So Paul says, I I know my partners. Do you? Peter says, remember your family. Are you connected to the family of God? Are you contributing to the family of God? You would know if there's more to your church experience than just showing up and consuming and leaving. To contribute means that you're involved and you give money, you give time, you serve, you you help people, you get in a group where you get connected and you get to know people. Have you just been a fan or are you part of the family? Can you say, I know my partners? Let's keep going. Let's go back to Philippians chapter one. Let's look at the the second clap back that, that Paul gives us here in Philippians one in verse five. He says this, for you've been my partners, watch this, in spreading the good news about Christ. From the first time you heard it until now, verse seven, you share with me in what? What, what are we sharing? The special favor, favor of God, both in my imprisonment, and then watch what he says, in defending and confirming the truth of the good news. Paul says, you've been my partners in spreading the gospel and defending and confirming the truth. So here's the the second comeback. Here's the second clapback that Paul gives us. I know my purpose. I I know my partners. You guys here in the the church, my family, my family, the family of God, my spiritual family here at the church of Philippi, you've been my partners, but you've also been on mission with me. We've been partners on purpose. We have a purpose. I know my purpose. You see, I think one of the reasons Cobe and my son wasn't discouraged or distracted by all the noise that my older son Levi was throwing his way was because Coben knew he had to forget the last play and he had to focus on the next play. He had to focus on this play. Like there was a purpose for him being on the team and there was a purpose that was going on right then that was even bigger than just him and what was going on between him and his brother. There was a bigger and greater purpose and that was to score the touchdown. That was to win the game. And he had people on his team that were encouraging him and saying, hey, forget that play. We've got to score here. We've got to win the game. We've got to remember our purpose for for why we're here. Paul says, I know my purpose. So what's your purpose? What is your purpose in this life? It's kind of like that question, what God, what is your will for my life? And I'm not sure there's a greater question besides dating and marriage and relationships. I'm not sure there's a greater question that college students have in my experience doing college ministry than, than what's my purpose? God, what is your will for my life. And usually what we mean by that is what, what major am I going to have uh, when I graduate? What am I going to do for a job? Well, you know, where am I going to live? We, we think those things are our purpose for living. That's the reason we're here is to get the right major and to get the right job, because that's kind of the focus of this part of your life. But I want to remind you that you weren't made, you weren't designed, you weren't created for a job. That's not the highest purpose of your life is to fill a role, to have a title or a position and to make money. Men, it's not the highest calling on your life to make money, to provide for your family one day. It's just not. Those are good things, but they're secondary to God's mission and purpose for your life. The reason you're on this planet. So here's the first purpose. You exist on this planet. Number one, it's to make Jesus famous. It's to make Jesus famous. That's why you exist. That's why you're on this planet. Let me show you what I'm talking about. Let's go back to Philippians 1. A little bit later, here's what Paul says in Philippians 1, verse 20. For I fully expect and hope that I will never be ashamed, but I will continue to be bold for Christ as I have been in the past. And I trust that my life, watch this, will bring honor to Christ, whether I live or die, Paul says. That's the goal of my life. In life and in death, Paul says, is to bring honor to Christ. For to me, watch what he says, living 
What is living all about? What does living mean? What's the purpose of living? Paul says living means living for Christ and dying is even better. This is the creed of a follower of Jesus, of a passionate follower of Jesus. I'm not talking about someone who just goes to church once a week. You can go to church once a week and go through the motions and sing the songs and listen and, and leave none the different. The cry of a follower of Jesus, a disciple, is my life is about bringing honor to Christ, whether I live or die. Living means living for Christ. In Colossians chapter one, Paul says it like this. All things were created by Jesus. So what is, what is all things? Well, it's everything. And he goes on to say everything on earth, everything above the earth, everything under the earth. So does that include you? Yes. You are a part of all things. Paul says all things were created by Jesus in Colossians 1. So you were created by Jesus. Yeah, your mom and dad got together. But you were created by Jesus. And one day, if you have a child, you will see in that moment, this is an absolute miracle of God. Yeah, my, my wife and I got together and we had multiple kids. But as each child was born, I can tell you from personal experience, being there as that child like came out, and this is a human being, like this is an absolute miracle of God. That somehow between my wife and I and God, another human being exists now. And they're, they're actually people. Like, it's so weird. Like when you have little kids and they start getting older, like they're actually people with their own like personalities and desires and thoughts. Like they're, they're real people. It's so weird. It's an absolute miracle of God. This, <laughs> this week, uh, my son Levi's in middle school now. And so they had their first homecoming. And so he, they, their middle school had a dance. And, and so, uh, they're at this dance and you know, Levi's kind of nervous before he goes. And, and so we're kind of talking about it. And there were some girls that wanted to go with him. And we were kind of like, no, it's too early for that. Like you can go with your friends and, and you can ask a girl to dance if you want to, but y'all can just all go to, and he was like, what? I was like, yeah, you can, you could ask a girl to dance. And he's like, no, no, I'm not doing that. And I'm like, well, I mean, you don't have to, but, but, but you could. And, and so, um, we have this like thought and impression of who our kids are, like and who they're, what they're like and what their personalities are like and what they do and what's natural for them or what would be unnatural. And so we're, we're, we're thinking that he's going to go and it's going to be this typical like middle school dance where the guys are on one side, and the girls on the other, and they never have anything to do with each other, you know, and it, it's just, it's kind of dead, right? It's just crickets. And so that's what we're thinking it's going to be. Well, come to find out this week, we find out from this little girl's mom, who we're very good friends with, that our son Levi went up to their daughter and asked her to dance. And here's how he asked her. Very confidently, which surprises me because this isn't who I was in middle school. I was totally shy. I wouldn't even hold a girl's hand like in a prayer circle in my youth group. So he goes up to this girl, he goes up to this girl and he says, I've been waiting all night. Oh, it gets better <laughs> for the perfect song, for the perfect girl. And I wanted to see if you would dance with me and like grabbed her by the hand. And I was just like, that's a lie. There's no way that happened. There is no way. Like I know my son, like I know him. I know his personality. There's no way in that happened. I'm just telling you, like I know him. And they're like, no, we promise you. Like we asked our daughter like over and over and over again, if that's what happened. And we were like, well, was he, did, did, did was he nervous or, or, or was it, you know, was he being silly or goofy? And they were, and she was like, nope, he was being totally serious and he was completely confident. And we we're like, what? 
That's just, that's not our son, but he's a person. Like he does, he does things that we don't expect him to do. He's got a personality. He does things obviously that he doesn't do at home and he does other things at school and with other people. We even found out like he was in the middle of this crowd and trying to get people into the crowd to dance. And we're like, that's, that's not Levi. That's not our son. But he was in the middle of this crowd, like the life of the party, dragging all these kids into the middle of the dance floor to get them to dance together. And we're just like, what is going on? but he's a person. This is a miracle of God. I'm telling you in every sense of the word, it's an absolute miracle. And every one of you are too. You're a miracle of God. God created you through Jesus and designed you to do this life in a certain way. And so Paul says in Colossians 1, you were made by Jesus through Jesus. And then he says this, in Colossians 1, and you were made for Jesus. You exist for Jesus. It's why you're on this planet. You exist for him. Not for a job, not even for a relationship. Those things are secondary and they're good things. But the primary reason you exist on this planet is to be in relationship with Jesus, is to worship Jesus, is to serve Jesus, is to love Jesus. Because you were created for Jesus. And I love the way the psalmist writes in Psalm 63. He says, my lips will praise you as long as I live. And it's in this, my soul is satisfied. In this, in making you famous and lifting up your name in worship, in the worship of God, the psalmist writes, Psalm 63, it's in this that my soul is satisfied with the richest of foods. Is your soul satisfied? Maybe it's not because you're not living for the thing you were designed to live for. That's to worship Jesus. That's to make him famous. It's why you exist on this planet. And until that becomes your life's ambition, your life's purpose, the creed of your life, like it was for Paul, living means living for Christ. Until that becomes the creed and the focus and the ambition of your life, your soul will never be satisfied. It's why you can run after a relationship or alcohol or drugs or whatever and it never leave you satisfied. It always leaving you feeling empty and with pain and regret because it's only in this in making Jesus famous that your soul will be satisfied. You can learn that the easy way by humbling yourself now, repenting of your sin, giving your life to Jesus, following Jesus. Or you can learn it the hard way through pain and regret. In this, in making Jesus famous, my soul is satisfied. Secondly, the second part, of your purpose for living is to make Jesus followers. It's to make Jesus followers. Let's go back. Philippians one, verse 22. Let's see what Paul says here. He says, but if I live, if I keep on living, I can do, watch what he says, more fruitful work for Christ. So I really don't know which is better. I'm torn between two desires. I long to go and be with Christ, which would be better by far. But watch what he says in verse 24. But for your sake, it's better that I continue to live. So knowing this, I'm convinced that I will remain alive. Why? Why am I going to remain alive? So I can continue to help all of you grow and experience the joy of your faith. Paul says, if I'm going to continue to live, living means living for Christ to make him famous. But it also means fruitful work for Christ, serving Christ. And part of serving Christ, the work for Christ that every single one of us as followers of Jesus are called to is to help other people grow and experience the joy of their faith in Christ. It's to make Jesus followers. 
Jesus said in Matthew 28, he told all of his disciples before he left this earth, he said, go and make disciples of all the nations. So disciples are called to make disciples. Jesus said, you follow me, I'm going to make you a fisher of men. There's no such thing as a follower of Jesus that's not a fisher of men. Because Jesus said, you follow me, that's what you're going to become as a fisher of men. Disciples make disciples, disciples are fishers of men. In Acts 1 verse 8, before Jesus left this world and ascended into heaven, he told his disciples, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. That's the mission, that's the purpose that Jesus has given us as his followers to live for. It's to make disciples, it's to be his witnesses. And in Acts 1 verse 8, witnesses in Greek is the Greek word martus, where we get the word martyr. You see, what Jesus was telling his disciples is you're going to be my witnesses regardless of the cost. Regardless of the cost, you will be my witnesses. That's my mission for you. Well, what does the church do with the mission that Jesus gave him? You read Acts 1 through 8 and the church is still centered and located in Jerusalem. They've stuck together and there's thousands upon thousands of people that are becoming followers of Jesus in Jerusalem. And that is great. But that's not the fulfillment of the purpose that Jesus gave his followers, right? He said, you would be my witnesses in Jerusalem and then Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So in Acts chapter eight, verse one, it says that there's a great persecution that breaks out in Jerusalem and all the believers are scattered, watch this, through Judea and Samaria. And then in Acts eight, verse four, You know what it says? All the believers that were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria preached the word wherever they went. All of them did. It wasn't just a special kind of called and chosen few, the super spiritual like Paul and Peter. It wasn't like they were the only ones that were going everywhere preaching the good news about Jesus. No, it says all the believers were scattered all throughout the region, Judea and Samaria. It says they preached the word, Acts 8, 4, everywhere they went, every single one of them. And so every single one of us are called to be pastors. Now you may say, no, no, I'm not. Like I'm going to be an engineer or I'm going to be a teacher or a lawyer or a coach or, or whatever. Like that's what I'm going to be. And I would say, that's awesome. That's great. That's the context where you will be a preacher of the gospel. You see, your city that you live in, the neighborhood you live in, the dorm you live in, the apartment that you live in, the class that you're in, the job that you have one day, that's just the context. Like that's just the space in which you make Jesus famous and you make Jesus followers because that's your primary purpose and mission in this life as a follower of Jesus is to make him famous and to make Jesus followers. Your job secondary. That's not the purpose of your life. That's not your reason for living is to do that job. Your reason for living is to make Jesus famous and to make Jesus followers. So we're all called to be his witnesses, to preach, to speak his word everywhere we go. You know, Jesus said, that the word representing the seed in this parable he spoke of one time, if it falls on good soil, it will produce a harvest 30, 60, and 100 times what was sown. But Jesus said some of the, the seed, like the word of God, will fall on soil people where there's a lot of thorns. And Jesus said that the thorns represent the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth. And he said the the thorns, the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth will choke out the word that was planted in that soil. In other words, there will be some people who receive the word and the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth will distract us from our primary mission, our primary 
purpose, to make Jesus famous, to make Jesus followers. And Jesus said, the worries of life, the deceitfulness of wealth can make you unfruitful. The things of this world, the things of this life, the wealth, money, things like that, they're not bad in and of themselves, but they can distract us from our primary mission, which is to make Jesus followers. The problem here for most of us is that we live in a society and a culture today that is dominated by becoming famous. I mean, we all have multiple social media accounts whose primary focus and aim is ourselves. Is it no wonder we are consumed with our own fame? And I throw myself in there as well. We are more concerned with our fame and our followers than we are with Jesus' fame and Jesus' followers. And I think if you're honest, you might say the same thing about yourself. And so we got to ask Jesus, Jesus, convict me, help me change my heart. Give me more of a passion, more of a passion for your fame and your followers than my fame and my followers. Change my heart, God. So that the creed of my life, like Paul, could be, I know my purpose. My purpose for living is living for Christ. So in this series, here's what we've said. To come back from shame, distraction, discouragement. Our big idea, our challenge has been is that you come back with a clapback. And we've said tonight, in addition to last week's, that I know my partners. Well, you could say it like this. It's not about me. It's about we. We've said I know my purpose. You could say it like this. It's not about me. It's about him and them. Now, I want to confess something to you. I'm just going to be real with you. When I hear this and when I was preparing this and getting this ready, I felt like the Lord was kind of convicting me and reminding me of something. And it's that when I speak, when I preach... I want to do a good job. And I want you to think that I do a good job. I do. And some of that's just natural. Like if you have a job, you have a profession, you want to do a good job and you want other people to think you do a good job. And that's, that's somewhat natural. But for me and for a Christian, that pursuit of your approval means that I can be easily distracted it means that I can be easily discouraged because of what you think of me. It's no wonder Paul said, if I try to win the approval of men, I can't be a servant of Christ. But if I'm honest, sometimes it's what you think about me or how you think I do that drives me more than my passion for Jesus and for his fame and for people to become his followers. And so because of that, if I mess up or if I say something wrong or I put two words together or I say or pronounce a word wrong, you know, whatever, I could harp on that all week. I could beat myself up over it. In fact, this Sunday, when I was talking about Philippians, the same passage, I said, let's go back to first Philippians. And um, if you read your Bible, if you grew up in church, you know, there's no first Philippians. It's just Philippians. If you didn't grow up in church, you're probably like, what's so funny about that? Like, what's the big deal? First Philippians. But there's no first Philippians. I messed up when I said it. And things like that, if I'm not careful, can drive me crazy. And here's another reason it's dangerous. Because I could begin to water down God's word or not tell you the hard things. Because I want you to like being here. And I want you to have a good experience. And I want you to feel good. And I want you to like me. So I could avoid the harder topics. And just give you the things that make you feel good. If I'm too concerned about what you think and what you think of me.
And so I have to regularly pray. God, it's not about me. It's about we, it's about us together. It's about the body of Christ. It's not about one person, what one person does. It's not all on me. The success, if you will, of what we're doing, and you can define that in a lot of different ways. It's not all on me. We've got a big team here, a staff. We've got volunteers, all of us together. Like we're a family. This is on us. It's not on me. And I've got to remind myself of that all the time. The other thing I've got to pray is it's not about me, it's about him and them. God, it's about you and it's about the growth of your faith. It's not about me and what you think of me or how I'm doing. My ambition, my heart must be, it's not about me, it's about him, it's about God, it's about them, it's about you. As Paul said, you experiencing the joy and the growth of your faith. So this is regularly my prayer. My challenge to you is to make it your prayer. God, it's not about me, it's about we. I know my partners. God, it's not about me, it's about him and them. I I know my purpose. So would you pray with me? God, right now I pray that your word would burn in our hearts and that you would continue to move in our hearts by the power of your Holy Spirit. God, to give us a passion for we, for our partners. And we would do whatever it takes to not just consume and be a fan, but to contribute and to become a part of the family. So God, would you show each person in here what those next steps look like for them? What it looks like to begin to contribute and to be a part of the family and not just a fan. God, would you show each person in this room just the attitude and the ambition of their hearts, God, and whether that lines up with your word and what they were designed and created to do this life for. God, would you reveal the sin that's in our heart that lives for our own fame and our own followers and not for your fame and and your followers. And God, I pray that tonight, through the power of the Holy Spirit, like Paul, we could say, Living means living for Christ. Living means living to work for Christ. We pray that in Jesus' name.